Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. I believe the group Three Dog Night in the early 70s said one is the loneliest number. Well, not if you're an NFL player because there are plenty of stars that wore jersey number one. And Larry Schmidt of the Big Blue Interactive and Gridiron Uniform Database is here to share who the greatest players that wore number one are. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, as we promised, we want to talk about the jersey number ones and the substantial players that wore this jersey number in the NFL. And with us, we're going to have a special guest, and that's Larry Schmidt. And Larry is a New York City pro football historian who specializes in the New York football giants, a research partner for the Gridiron Uniform Database, and a frequent contributor to the Big Blue Interactive site. And when we have a topic for pro football in the Big Apple, we at the Pigskin Dispatch Go to Larry, who I refer to as the guru of the New York City gridiron. You probably read his stuff and heard him on our podcast on October 4th episode about the great linebacker Sam Huff. Larry Schmidt, welcome to the Pigpen. Thanks for having me, Darren. I don't know where a good jumping off point is, but I know you've got some some things you want to talk about, some players that wore the number one in the NFL. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of them. A lot of players that have worn number one, um, eight members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame have worn the number one. And um, as I was doing my research, and I remembered that, you know, several prominent uh, Giants wore number one, and they're all players who had played in the 1920s and early 1930s, because the number one was retired by the Giants in 1935 in honor of Andre Flaherty, and that is the first instance in North American professional sports where a number was retired in a player's honor. Wow. That's, and we're, we're starting it off right then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. So they retired that number for Flaherty in 35, but the Giants had a tradition where when they started playing in 1925, their featured player or their marquee player that they wanted to draw fans' attention to were given the number one. So in the Giants' first season in 1925, it was um, halfback Hinky Haynes who wore number one that season. Then in 1926, Haynes switched his number to two, and they gave number one to fullback and their best passer, Jack McBride. And McBride wore number one for the next three seasons for the Giants for from 26 to 1928. And then McBride left the Giants. He went to Providence. And the Giants had purchased the entire Detroit Wolverine franchise so they could get Benny Friedman to be their quarterback. Huh. So obviously, when you buy a whole team to get one player, you're going to put number one on the back of his jersey. <laughs> I so guess Benny, so. Yeah, and Benny Friedman in 1929 set the NFL record at that time for 20 touchdown passes, which stood for, I believe, I can't remember the exact number of years. I know it's, that 20 touchdown passes was the record until the 1940s. He had that for almost 20 years. Wow. And then Friedman went to the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then Ray Flaherty, who had been on the Giants in 29, but he wore number 44, and then he was on the Giants again in 31. He wore number 6, but Ray Flaherty got the number 1 in 1932, and he wore it until 1935 because he was the team captain, and he was also head coach Steve Owen's first you know, 
assistant coach. He was a player coach. So he wore the number one, and then when he retired as a player, the Giants retired his number one. What they did in 1946, they unretired number one for two years. They gave it to Frank Cope, who was a tackle, and he had been on the Giants for over 10 years, and he was a captain, and they gave, he had worn number 36 for most of his career, but his last two years, they allowed him to wear number one, and then when he retired in 1947, no giant has worn the number one since. That seems so foreign to us today to hear of a a tackle, either on the offensive side or the defensive side, wearing a single digit. But I believe it was sometime in the 50s, late 50s, when the NFL changed their rules so that uh, the 50 through 79 numbers were for interior linemen on the offense, just uh, so you knew who the eligible pass receivers were. Sometime in the 50s, I forget the exact date. But, yeah, uh, that's there the... was no numbering system. And when you go back and you look through game programs and newspapers where they have lineups and rosters, it was very – unusual for players to even wear numbers above the 30s. Most players wore numbers in the teens, 20s, and low to mid-30s. Not every team um, allowed players to wear single-digit numbers, and it was really rare to see anyone wear a number in the 40s or the 50s until that was probably the 1940s because the the All-America Conference, you know, they're trying to be diverse and be different from the NFL. They had players wearing all kinds of numbers. And then, you know, obviously the merger with the All-America Conference in 1950, the NFL the league was bigger, bigger rosters, and they realized they needed to get a little bit of organization. <laughs> and you know who was probably a big fan of the single digits, especially number one, was probably the seamstress that had to sew the numbers on back then, you know? <laughs> That's right. A lot less work. <laughs> right. A lot easier yeah, that than a 44, you know? Well, uh, I mean, that, that is some great stuff uh, on back in the old days. Let's, uh, I'd like to change this just a little bit, and let's talk about some of the big hitters. And, uh, I mean, we have one – Giant, I mean, not a New York Giant, but one giant of the football game that wore the number uh, that's a Hall of Famer, and that's Warren Moon. That's right. Warren Moon was um, a big, big time passer. He had a lot of renown coming out of college. He had a very successful career. But when he was eligible for the NFL draft, there was, there weren't a lot of believers, you know, unfortunately. At that time, which wasn't that long ago, there was still somewhat of a stigma. Was an African-American player capable of being a National Football League quarterback? So Moon went to Canada, and he played with the Edmonton Eskimos of the CFL for five years. And uh, wouldn't you know, he won the CFL title, the Grey Cup, five consecutive years. (laughs) And then he went to the Houston Oilers in 1984 and became obviously a very, very successful quarterback because they featured an entire offense built around his talents and his skills. And in 1986, the Houston Oilers became the very first run-and-shoot football team where they had empty backfield, four and five wide receivers, throw the ball, you know, regardless of down and distance and field position and game situation, just throw it, throw it, throw it. And he, you know, at the time in the 1980s and the early 90s, throwing for 4,000 yards in a season was a big deal. Not many people that weren't named Dan Marino did it. And 400-yard games, he had a 500-yard game in 1990. So he was very, very uh, not just capable but prolific. Yes, he was. I can remember the, watching those Houston Oilers run and shoot teams. And the uh, offensive coordinator, I believe his name escaped, was it Mouse Davis? Is that who the offensive coordinator was down in Houston? Yep, he was one. He also he had um, Kevin Gilbride was on that staff, too. Yes, that's right. Loved to, loved to throw the ball, and, you know, those receivers had the sight reads where they would change their route according to how they were being covered by the defensive backs. So they're actually changing the play in real time. They're running down the field. Do I stop? Do I in-cut, out-cut? Do I keep running? And, you know, and Warren Moon had to read the defense. He had to read what his receivers were doing, and everyone had to be on the same page. So Warren Moon disproved a lot of, uh, a lot of prejudices with his uh, play. 
He, he sure did. I mean, he was uh, 17 seasons, I believe, in the NFL after his uh, stint in the CFL. Um, yeah, he played over, I believe, over 20 years, if you include the CFL with the NFL. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he was not only with the Oilers, he played a little bit with the Chiefs, uh, Vikings, if you remember. Yep. Uh, had a cup of coffee, I, I think, with the Seahawks. Right, right. He did. So, yeah, very, very big player there. Now, uh, in our conversation prior to, to re- recording this, uh, we had a, a great tie-in, or you had a great tie-in to Warren Moon. It takes us all the way back in history. We're jumping all over the map here, but I sort of wanted to get this tie-in to, to uh, Warren Moon in the, the African-American quarterback. Yep, Fritz Pollard, the 1920 Akron pros. He was an African-American player, and he was he was a tailback. You know, there weren't really quarterbacks because they played the single wing, but he was the primary passer, and he was the play caller. And Fritz Pollard was an extremely talented player, not just as a passer, but he could run and he played defense. And the first, uh, first championship in the American Professional Football Association was the Akron Pros with um, Fritz Pollard being their number one player. And, you know, being the 1920s, he encountered much, much adversity, you know, from opposing players and whenever they played on the road, opposing fans. And he endured a lot, but he was um, he was a trailblazer, you know, who ended up being enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame much, uh, much later through the uh, Veterans Committee. But he, like Warren Moon, uh, they both wore the number one. And um, I think they both did that number uh, – a lot of justice. They wore it very proudly. And they, oh, absolutely. They, they earned the right to wear number one, no question. Yeah, they they were definitely the number one players on their teams. <laughs> now, we have another modern quarterback that's still playing the game, uh, Cam Newton wearing number one, Superman as they call him. man is 6'5", 245 uh, when he came in. And something when I was doing the research that I had sort of forgotten about is that Cam Newton, I mean, we all know about him playing at Auburn, but he initially – played at Florida for a couple of years, 2007, 2008, but he was sitting behind Tim Tebow. So that's sort of why he transferred. He transferred to a junior college. I believe it was Blinn college for a year. And then he played his final season of eligibility at Auburn. Uh, but that, that's his college uh, background. What can you tell us about Cam Newton in the pros? You know, it was funny watching Cam Newton play for the uh, New England Patriots this year, which was <laughs> Startling in its own right, you know, Tom Brady's in uh, Tampa Bay and he's, you know, Cam Newton's in New England. But watching the way that Bill Belichick ran the team and schemed their offense around Cam Newton's abilities, I think Cam Newton probably would have fit in very well in single-wing football in the 1920s. He certainly has the the size and the athletic ability, you know, the run-pass option, it's Definitely. You, know, you put him in an unbalanced line, you get an extra guard, and they pull, and they all, you know, student body going to the right with Cam Newton. I mean, he could, he's big enough to truck a linebacker on his own. <laughs> can you imagine that? I, I could, you're, you're, I, I'd have no problem putting a leather helmet on that guy. <laughs> right. Can you imagine in this day and age, if you're a cornerback, and let's say, you know, an average cornerback is what, maybe 205, 210 maybe, uh, and you know, Cam Newton gets around the corner, gets into the the second level, and you got this guy, you know, six foot five, two forty five, barreling down on you. And you got to stop him. <laughs> yeah, you have defensive backs that are giving away thirty pounds to him. Yeah, you got to go. You got to go low. You're not going to tackle him up high. <laughs> right, that's have, for sure. You have and prints on your jersey. <laughs> and he is elusive too. Uh, you know, he was an All-Pro in 2015. So far, he's been in three Pro Bowls and played in a Super Bowl. But his uh, national championship game, I mean, I, I still remember that. Uh, they played the Oregon Ducks uh, in the 2010 championship game, 22-19. to 19, And he was he was definitely the star of the show in that game, too. Yep. Uh, great, great player. All right. Uh, who, who else you got that wore the number one jersey? Well, we have... Um... The man whose statue you see right as you walk in the front doors of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Jim Thorpe. He oh, played yes. for he played for a, a lot of teams and you know a lot of years pre NFL and you know what we now call the Ohio League with Canton. And he moved around the NFL and he was with the Giants for a couple of games in 1925. But he wore number 21 then. But he did wear number one when he was on Rock Island, and he was definitely the 
biggest name in pro football, you know, for the first five years before uh, Red, Ga- Red Grange joined the league in 1925. But Jim Thorpe was the most most visible name, and he's probably the the marquee player for the NFL's first four or five years. And wore, won a couple of titles with uh, Canton. Yes, yes, he did. And he yeah, Rock Island Independence wearing number one. And something that was kind of interesting about Thorpe that I, I mean, I guess you don't really think about, but when the NFL started in 1920, he was 33 years old when he started his career and right. played till he was 41. You think about, you know, Tom Brady and Drew Brees playing, you know, into their 40s, Warren Moon playing in his 40s. That's a quarterback position. You've seen some kickers do it. Thorpe was, uh, he was taking, you know, taking a beating carrying the ball, especially back in that day and age. Yeah. Be 41 years old. Pollard, they played both ways. They had to play yeah. defense too. Yeah. You know, if you're the wow. quarterback, you throw an interception. You're not walking to the sideline, getting on the phone, talking to the coach upstairs, telling you what went wrong. You're just getting in the defensive huddle. <laughs> you're yeah. not allowed to walk off the field. Oh, jeez. I mean, didn't know, you know, all his success in other sports, you know, too, especially the Olympic sports, you know, yeah. taking the gold medals. And we won't even talk yeah. about that tragedy of him losing the medals there for a while. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but he was the he was the guy. He was the biggest name. He he definitely deserved to wear number one. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. How, how about uh, what, how are some uh, other Hall of Famers that you have that wore the number one that you'd like to talk about? Patty Driscoll. Oh, yes. For the Chicago Cardinals and the Chicago Bears. So he was, um, he played with both Chicago teams through the 1920s, and he was another tailback, but he was the primary passer and the play caller. Today he would be considered a quarterback, but in single wing football, you were usually the left halfback. And he was also an excellent drop kicker. He's, he holds the record. He made four successful drop kicks in one game. And like Jim Thorpe, because Jim Thorpe was considered, you know, the great drop kicker of the 1910s and the 1920s. But uh, Patty Driscoll also successfully made a 50-yard drop kick, which I believe is what's recognized as the recorded record. But, you know, the record keeping yeah. for the 1920s was spotty at best. You typically go through game summaries, you know, to find out what's recorded. So uh, Driscoll has what's recognized as the longest successful drop kick. Yeah, and I believe that took place in the 1924 season. Uh, we had uh, every day on the Pigskin Dispatch uh, podcast and on the, the website, we'd talk about the Hall of Famers on their birthdays. And we we just covered him a few weeks ago, and January 11th was his, his birthday for Patty Driscoll. Uh, the other thing that we have uh, – we're members of the Sports History Network here, so we we have a network of podcasters that, that get together on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com. And one of our fellow podcasters is Joe Zimba, and he is everything Chicago Cardinals, everything Chicago football, just like you are with New York. But Chicago Cardinals, really, he is an expert on. He has a, a book on them, you know, uh, When Football Was Football. That's also the name of his podcast. So he has quite a bit of information on Patty Driscoll. Um Driscoll, uh, how he became a Chicago Bear is kind of interesting. Uh, in 1926, after playing with the Cardinals for, for many years, his rights were sold to the Chicago Bears to prevent him from going into the rival original AFL uh, Professional League. Uh, they were offering him a bunch of money, and Hallis really didn't want to see him go out. So he made a deal with, uh, I believe, Mr. Bidwell at the time and uh, got, got Patty to come over and be a Bear. <laughs> yeah, cause the, that league had the Bulls in Chicago, and if I remember correctly, it was um, oh, who was who was the assistant coach with the Bears? Because I believe he jumped to the Bulls for a year. I I, I know who you're talking about, and it was, I think you're definitely right. I think it was the Chicago Bulls were the ones that were going to take Patty. So yeah. he he had a, a three team, uh, you know. Chicago oh, with, teams um, after him, you know. Joey Sterneman. Joey Sterneman jumped to the, jumped to the Bulls. I was thinking yeah. Dutch, Dutch Sterneman was his brother, but Joey Sterneman played for the Chicago Bulls for that one season. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. Different era of football. That's uh, yeah. especially when you have three teams in Chicago. You know, that's that's crazy. A lot, a lot of player movement. <laughs> All right, uh, who else do we have for Hall of Famers that were the number one? We have the founder of the Packers franchise, Curly Lambeau, wore the number one. Oh. 
And, you know, he's generally recognized, you know, as the Packers founder and as a great coach, but he did play for a number of years, and he was proficient in passing the ball, and he's considered one of the early practitioners of passing the ball and scheming and strategizing to throw and not just, you know, run, 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 punt on fourth down or sometimes punt on third down back in the 1920s. You know, long before uh, Vince Lombardi was, you know, Vince Lombardi won five championships with Green Bay, but Curly Lambeau coached them to six. Curly Lambeau is I mean, definitely Hall of Fame material, part of the original inaugural class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, probably more yep. so for his coaching. But, yeah, he was a great player, too, back in the era. Yeah, oh. and he founded the Packers in 1919, you know, pre-APFA. They joined in 1921, but the Packers were existing and playing as an independent team for, for two seasons. And then he was a player coach in the beginning of his career, and then – in uh, 1929, he won his first title with Green Bay, and they were the first franchise to three-peat. They won in 29, 30, and 31. I guess you do things like that. They name a field after you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and they let you know where the number one. <laughs> That's right. Right. That's right. All right. How, how about any other Hall of Famers we have that wore the jersey number one? Um, we uh, Another player who – is probably better known as a coach, uh, Jimmy Condleman. Oh, yes. Player. He wore the number one. And, you know, in keeping with the uh, the Chicago theme and the Cardinals, he coached the Cardinals to the title in 1925. Yeah. Oh, no, I take that back. I apologize. He wasn't. He won the title in 1928 with Providence. Right, yeah, this Providence steamroller. The final, you know, the final franchise that's no longer with us to win the title, and he won it with the Cardinals in 1947, which is the last time the Cardinals franchise has won a title. And then he won the East again in '48, but they lost to the Eagles. You know, they have that 19. Uh, uh, the championship team of the steamroller have one of my favorite names. This was especially in college football, but George Wildcat Wilson. He didn't wear number one, but I, I just love right. saying the name George Wildcat Wilson. So I say anytime I get the chance. So just threw that in there. But, uh, That's right. Conzelman was part, not only that championship season, but the next year, 1929, I believe, they had the very first night game in the NFL. I don't know if you've ever heard that story. But, uh, Cyclodrome. Yeah, at the Psychodrome, and, uh, and it was against the Cardinals, uh, Chicago Cardinals. So, yeah, very, very, a lot of uh, history there with Mr. Konzelman, and he he was he got around in the league a little bit too. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he played quite a bit with, and coached quite a bit. So, very important uh, person that wore the number one in uh, the pro football game. Okay, how who else do we do we have any other Hall of Famers that we missed on the list? That covers all of our Hall of Famers. You know, you know, looking at the more contemporary usage of the number one, I think you find probably more than quarterbacks, you see a lot of kickers yes. who are the number one. I think uh, Garo Yepremian probably brought the number one. Just a little bit of infamy with his uh, ill-fated uh, pass in the, in the Super Bowl to cap off the Dolphins. Per- almost perfect season. Everything was perfect except for that pass. <laughs> That was intercepted by Washington, and it cost them the shutout in the Super Bowl. It, uh, it almost uh, got like, got Washington back in a game, but that had to be scary for Dolphins fans at that, yeah, that point. Yeah, it looked like smooth sailing, and then all of a sudden it's a one-score game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's definitely better with his leg than he was with his hand in the game of football <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> from what we, we saw. Uh, how, how about some other kickers we have that uh, some of our listeners have probably once watched? Yeah, so you know the one thing I remember watching was Raphael Septien. Was he when he oh, was yes. for the Cowboys? He used to have the most precise setup before kicking the ball, where he would be right where the holder was going to spot it, and he would carefully measure his steps going back one, and then two, and then he would do the same thing: take two steps to the left to set That's up right. the approach for the ball. And he learned that from. Tom Landry, when Tom Landry was the coach, was the uh, defensive coach for the Giants in the 1950s, Ben Agajanian was the Giants kicker. And Landry would spend time at practice with Agajanian because 
Tom Landry wasn't a place kicker, but he was the Giants punter in the early 50s. And he would talk about kicking and punting with Agajanian. And Landry had the idea to have Ben Agajanian take measure the steps so you do everything the same way every time, you know, like perfecting a golf swing where you set up the mechanics and then you just go through the motion. And what is that? When, it's like back three steps uh, to the side, um, was, left or right, uh, one? two. Back two, two to okay. the left two, and then you come. Then you come at the ball at almost like a forty-five degree angle. And, and you and see probably a great deal of today's kickers at all levels. I mean, I, I know you definitely see it in the high school game, college game. You even see some of the pro kickers still practicing that to this yeah, day. That's right. So, so then um, it was in the seventies when Tom Landry was the head coach of the Cowboys. He hired Agajanian to be the Cowboys kicking coach, and then you know Agajanian was. Raphael Septien's kicking coach. So then he took hmm. the same same approach to the ball that uh, Landry had come up with with Agajanian in the 50s. <laughs> you know, something that's kind of interesting about Septien, I always remembered him in a cowboy uniform, and I didn't realize this until I was doing some research this week, but he actually played one year with the Rams. That's who he his initial team, and I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, they must have got a better offer or something, and uh, got went with the Cowboys, as you are talking about. Yeah. And I remember the Rams had uh, Mike Lansford, who wore the number one, and he was a barefoot kicker. You know, oh, barefoot yes. Kickers, barefoot kickers were kind of in vogue for, you know, in the mid and the late 1980s. Yeah, that, that had to hurt, you know. It just hurts me I, thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I remember going to a Giants game at the Meadowlands against the Rams, and it was late in the year, and it was freezing cold, and Lansford is out there on the AstroTurf barefoot. Uh, you know, and I'm in, you know, and I'm in the stands, and I'm wearing two pairs of socks, and I have boots on. I'm, what is that guy doing out there in a barefoot? Yeah, you and didn't want to kick the frozen football with your boots on, even, you know. Yeah, and those astroturf fields were like it was asphalt. I mean, it was freezing cold. Yeah, I don't know how they did it. There was a few of them in the 1980s, and you know, and he's from Los Angeles. He's a Southern California warm weather. You know, the grass field in uh, Anaheim probably felt nice with a barefoot, but uh, I don't know about that frozen turf in uh, North Jersey. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it wasn't warm, that's for sure. No, it was not. Yeah. Well, staying back in that era, we also had Raphael Sepcion that were uh, the um, number one also. Um, or did we already talk? We already talked about it. I'm sorry. Ephraim Herrera. That's, I'm sorry. Ephraim Herrera. Oh, Ephraim. I played with Dallas. Um, my notes are all over the place. Sorry about that. Yeah, Efren Herrera was also a Dallas Cowboy back, I think, right after Raphael Sepcian. I think he preceded him because I remember oh, did he? Efren Her- yeah, I think Efren Herrera was on Seattle when Sepcian was on Dallas. Okay, maybe that's true. Okay. You're testing my memory. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess my, my memory's shot because you can tell. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Herrera actually had a Super Bowl win also. And I f- failed to mention your premium had two Super Bowl uh, titles, both with the Dolphins, I believe. Yeah, 72-73. Right. Yeah, the, the great uh, Dolphins team. didn't throw a pass, so that was good. <laughs> right. That was, Don Shula was much happier with him in that yes, game, I'm, I'm sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How, as long as we're staying on this kicker uh, kick, up. I'd like to go to one of my favorite kickers because uh, he played quite a bit with my team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's Gary Anderson, who's not yet in the Hall of Fame. Possibly, I know they've been talking about it the last few years, uh, but had 23 seasons in the NFL, 13 with Pittsburgh, five with Minnesota, and had some stops with Philly and Tennessee and San Francisco. Uh, you know, he was in the Pro Bowl four times. A first team All Pro 1998 when he was with the Vikings, his first year with the Vikings. Of course, I was going from the outdoors of Pittsburgh to the Dome. You know, that, that certainly yeah. helps out a lot. Uh, but his extra point attempts, I thought this was really great. He only missed seven of his extra point attempts in 23 years out of 827 attempts. That, that's a, some pretty good numbers. 99.2% on that. Yes. Yeah, so. I remember he was kicking around the same time you know, for a long time as Nick Lowry of the Chiefs, and they were always going head-to-head as far as the NFL's active career scoring leaders. It would, you know, would toggle back and forth. One year it was Anderson, one year it was Lowry, depending on which team was higher scoring or who kicked more field goals and who kicked more extra points. 
And you had Morton Anderson back in that era, too, who was, you know, I think that Morton Anderson spelled his last name was S-E-N, and he, Gary Anderson was S-O-N. But they went back and forth, too, I know, on uh, who was the most accurate kicker. You remember when they had those stats going on, you know? <laughs> I always had an affinity for Morton Anderson because he was a left-footed kicker. Yeah, kick it from the wrong I side. Always, <laughs> I, always, I always root for lefty kickers and lefty quarterbacks. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I was a fo- high school football official for 27 seasons, uh, and probably about 15 of those seasons I was a referee. So the referee, when teams are setting up to go kick a field goal or an extra point, you have to go to one side or the other, so you're sort of facing the holder. And I could remember, uh, you know, it was, it was real easy with right-footed kickers to us, but, you know, 90% of the kickers are at the high school level or, or they're right-footed. So I'd always line up, you know, where I'm supposed to be. This one game, the coach even told me beforehand his, his kicker was left-footed. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I got, I sort of forgot about it. I get, I'm, the kids are ready to, to kick the ball, ball. And I look, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm looking at this holder's back, you know, <laughs> I can't even <laughs> see the ball when it comes under, but just one of those little things, uh, Nuisance of yeah, the football games, you know. For the holder, if he was lined up on the wrong side for a lefty kicker. Yeah, he'd probably get kicked in the chops, you know. <laughs> sure would. <laughs> All right. How about uh, some other players who wore the number one that you'd like to talk about? Mm-hmm. I've, I've got another kicker in mind, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. One a little bit more contemporary, Jason Elam. Uh, 17 seasons in the NFL, 15 of those with the Denver Broncos, a couple with the Falcons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was another. Uh, kicking in that high altitude in Denver, he has the, he was, he set the record for the 64 yarder. I believe he did, yes. Which has, been, which has since been tied, but that record of 63 had lasted for a while. And, Another stat, uh, when I was looking at him, we've talked about Anderson missing seven extra points. Uh, uh, Elam only missed four extra points in his 17 seasons out of 679 attempts, only missed four for 99.4 percentage on the extra point. Now, of course, everything was a little bit closer back for most of his career, not like it is today where they're, they're kicking just a little bit further on the extra points. Yep. But yeah, still, the that's... Records uh records just keep getting uh, longer and longer, and the success percentage keeps going higher and higher. You know, like back in the... when players were drop kicking and they were just learning to uh, place kick when it was straight ahead place kicking. If you made 50% of your kicks, you're considered pretty good. You know, now the success ratio is if you're under 90. Yeah, right. You're not cutting it. And And you're expected. Like, how often do you see players, like, on a given Sunday attempt and successfully make 50 yard field goals? You know, even in the 1990s, you weren't, you know, you you weren't expected to make fifty percent of your kicks from over fifty, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and you have disappointments where you have somebody you know like uh, Mr. Tucker of Baltimore I mean, makes yeah. everything, gets in that big game and misses a couple crucial ones, and you know, right. if you feel for the guy, you know, just like uh, Gary Anderson, we just talked about a little bit ago with his uh, had that great season where he was, I think he made all of his field goals and all of his extra points that season. Yeah. Got in that yeah, NFC championship game and missed that crucial one. Oh, that you had to feel for the guy there, you know. Yeah, you, you don't want to go into the playoffs with a pre. You want to miss one in the regular season <laughs> just to get that out of the way. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I had something I, for, I wanted to add and I forgot about when we were talking about Jimmy Conzelman. We were talking about that night game. I, I yeah. found this. Uh, I found this hilarious. Okay, when that after they they. Uh, Steamroller found the success of having that night game because they had like 6,000 people show up and before that their gates were just horrible. So they, uh, 1930, the floodlights were permanently put in at the Cyclodrome. Mm-hmm. But the players received a pay reduction for the night games so that the team could pay for the cost of floodlight installation. <laughs> you know, usually when you work at night, you get hazard pay. You get a little bump right. and they ended up taking a cut. <laughs> They, can you imagine? See, that was before the NFL had a union. <laughs> right, but can you imagine that going to you know twenty some guys that are you know used to beating up on people, and you're going, hey guys, uh, we have a night game tonight, so I need We're to take a, you know, a couple bucks out of your paycheck. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know good. that um, in 1930. 
probably, you know, piggybacking off that idea that they had in Providence in 28. In 1930, the NFL experimented, I think, in most of the cities to have night games. I know the Giants hosted two at the Polo Grounds where they rented floodlights and they brought them into the stadium because they didn't have permanent lights at the Polo Grounds until 1940. And they used them... You know, for for baseball, they weren't using them for the football Giants for a long time. Right. <laughs> and I know what I think the Giants played a game at Chicago. That was a night game that year. Huh. But that, that was just you know it was a one year thing. I guess it wasn't as big of a hit because they were playing some of those games during the week. I know the Giants played the Cardinals during the week at night in 1930, and they had an okay crowd, but it wasn't as much of a boon as they thought. Yeah, but that idea probably came from Providence, where they did it in 1928. That's probably you're probably right. They saw the success of it, but they probably got paid the same or more though. At some point in time, like they do I, now. I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one player that uh, fair, fairly significant that wore the number one. He only wore it for two seasons. Was Jeff George when his uh, first? Uh, sorry, three seasons with the Atlanta Falcons. And after he started off with Indianapolis, played four years there, had three years with the, the Falcons where he wore the number one, uh, you know, didn't wear it for a long time of his career, but still, I mean, pretty significant player, good quarterback, pretty good quarterback. Yeah, I think he wore number 11 with the Colts, right? So he wore. Yeah, he wore uh, number 11 with the Colts, and later with Oakland, he wore number three. So we'll probably be talking about him again in the next few weeks here on this uh, this journey through our, our football numbers. So, uh, who else would you like to talk about that wore the number one? I'm trying to think of another another kicker or punter who had worn it. We haven't talked about punters well, much. No, uh, well, we had uh, Tony Franklin wore it for quite a few seasons. Oh, that's right, another bear yeah. kicker. Right, yeah, yeah so he paper. wore it. Uh, Matt Turk, I have wearing it for uh, a lot of seasons, uh, mm-hmm. almost 16 seasons I believe he played. Um, Mike Hollis, uh, Neil Rackers, uh, Pat McAfee. Um, those are some of the ones. Uh, Mike Nugent is another one that uh, the kicker that wore the number one for about twelve seasons. And there's, of course, there's there's so many players that have wore uh, that number. Uh, I have Lawrence Tynes wearing a number one. Somebody you're probably familiar with a little bit. Yeah, he, that must have been when he was on Kansas City. Uh, or could actually, be, after uh, the Giants, he was on Tampa Bay. Hell, I can tell you that in just a second here. Uh, yeah, Kansas City, his first three seasons in the league, he wore the number one. Yeah. That's where they got that from before he was a Giant. That quick trivia question, what number did he wear with the Giants? <laughs> I'm cheating because I have an answer in front of me. But <laughs> Lay it on me. He wore number nine. He did. Oh, wow. Yeah. You are, and I you know, are all um, over it. He, well, of course I know because he is <laughs> the only player in NFL history to convert two field goals in overtime. And he did wow. them both in, he did them both in NFC championship games. So his foot sent the Giants to the Super Bowl twice. <laughs> well, that's one good way to remember him. 2011, yeah. <laughs> well, that is, and he, that but he is did good. it wearing the number nine with the Giants. Right, you are correct. Number All over had, it. Number number one had been retired for Ray Flaherty back in uh, 1935. Aha. Okay. All right. Uh, do you have anybody else that you want to talk about with number one? Um, gone through most of the significant ones that uh, I had on my list. Uh, yeah, that's all I can re- think of off the top of my head. Well, we've well, we got, got another one on me. <laughs> well, we've got we've got one player that hasn't played for very long but could be substantial, Kyler Murray, quarterback Perhaps. of the Arizona Cardinals. Very good player. He looked pretty good throwing that Hail Mary against the Buffalo Bills. Oh, my goodness. That was something. That was yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, that's sure little guy. I mean, he runs around. He's probably a little bit like uh, – you know, Fritz Pollard was back in the day, moving, making plays with the feet, running the ball, and, um, you know, with with very little time on the clock, you know, he can uncork one to the end zone and steal the win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Now, another young player currently in the NFL, and I'm going to probably say his name wrong, but 
Tua Taglavovia. Uh, I know I butchered it. I'm sorry, but the, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said it, and not me. <laughs> I, I my, my we'll just go with, them with with Tua from here on in. But yeah. wearing number one with the Dolphins this past season. Another great player. Um, I had uh, Don Mikowski wearing it for, I believe, uh, two seasons. It wasn't with the Packers. He must have been with somebody yeah, he else. Was number, he was number seven with the Packers. Yeah, he played two years with Detroit right at the end of his uh, career in 1995 and 96. He wore the number one with the Detroit Lions. Huh. Number, his first year with Green Bay, he wore number five, according to the pro football reference, which I have up in front of me. Really? Then he changed to number seven in his second year with the Packers. He wore it for that year that that was when he was the magic man. When he when he was yeah. the, you know running around and making some last second plays to win games. And and uh, yeah, I think he he got hurt, and that's when Favre came in after they traded for Favre. I believe that's something yep. along those lines. Yeah, so, there were still people that were you know clamoring for Mikowski to come back in after Favre started. You know. <laughs> I look back at that now, and you're like, going, why? <laughs> Everybody loves the backup quarterback. <laughs> That's for sure. That's He's always sure. the most popular player on the team. <laughs> <laughs> that is for sure. Okay, uh, I have Randall Cunningham wore for the, the number one for a season, too. On the Vikings, yes. That's right. Uh, yes. he, wore number, yep. he wore number 12 when he was with the Eagles. Right. And, uh, yeah, he was he number was 12. Randy Moss's of- rookie year when Randy Moss came on the scene. That was uh, – well, no, you know what? No, actually, it wasn't with Minnesota. He wore number seven for three years with Minnesota, went to Dallas, wore number seven again there, and then his last season, 2001, he wore number one with the Baltimore Ravens. Ah. So that's that's a very significant player. Didn't didn't have significant games with the number one on, I'm sure, yeah. but uh, but still somebody worth uh, talking about. Uh, right. I had another kicker. Uh, David Trout uh, wore the number one for, I believe, a season in 1981. Also, Michael Vick in 2014 wore number one. I think that might have been with the Steelers, if I'm not mistaken. But let me make sure about that one. Nope, I'm sorry. With the New York Jets, he wore number one. He was number two with the Steelers in his final year, 2015. (laughs) Gosh, I forgot he was even on the Jets. (laughs) Yeah, I did too. Trying to go through, we have uh, I have uh, John Carney wearing the number one for a season. Um, that was probably near the end of his career with another team, too. He had wore it for one year in Jacksonville, a partial year in Jacksonville. Left Jacksonville, went to Kansas City in the middle of the year. Went to Kansas City, he wore number five. But with the Jags, 2007, number one. Yeah, he wore number five his short time with the Giants. They had him late in his career. Uh, yes, he did. It looks like uh, one season there with the Giants after Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Lawrence Pines was hurt. He spent most of the year on IR. That's right. And then oh. John Carney went to the Pro Bowl that year. I think you're – yeah, yes, he did. Some lesser-known kickers. Uh, Matt Bryant uh, wore it for a year in 2004, wore number one. Pretty much of uh, – there's a lot of other players that are lesser-known. I mean, we hate to forget them, but we would be here for – uh, you know, a couple of days you're talking about everybody that wore number one, but I think we covered, if I'm not mistaken, all of the, the major uh, players that wore number one in uh, football history. We've exhausted uh, for, my memory banks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm going down the list here. A lot more. If we go through the through the old game programs, we'll find a we'll find a, a bunch of them, a bunch of them. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, we know. I mean, I appreciate you talking about the, the number one jerseys here, but you have some activities go with, like we talked earlier, you are, uh, with the Big Blue Interactive, you're a major contributor with them, major contributor with the Gridiron Uniform database. Uh, do you have anything, uh, that you have going on with either of those, uh, great websites that you, you have something cooking that our, our listeners could tune into to see some of your work? Well, there's always activity going on at the Gridiron Uniform database. Uh, Bill Schaefer, keeps me busy. I'm kind of his uh, right-hand man, and I help him out with a lot of the bigger research projects. And, you know, those big research projects, we, we always joke, you know, when we go into there looking for something, we find something else, and, you know, we're looking for uh, face mask clips, and then you're going through years and years of photos, and then as you're going through the timeline, something else pops, like, oh, we got to work on this, and 
did you know this team was doing this this year? We don't have that. So that's just always ongoing. And, you know, now that it's, we're approaching the off season after the Super Bowl, that's when we really get to work on a lot of the historical parts of it, you know, because during the season a lot of it is keeping up with what the teams are wearing and changes and alternate uniforms and all kinds of stuff like that. So there's always something going on at the Gridiron Uniform Database. And, and, uh, you just made me remember a story about you, of our interaction. I mean, early on in uh, you know, our correspondence back email quite a bit, I, I asked you a question to, about, uh, I believe Tim Mara had uh, some, some celebration coming. It might have been his birthday back in the, the summer. And I asked you about, and I didn't really really know you that well. And uh, so I asked us, hey, you know, you're in the New York area. You know, what can you tell me about Tim Mara? And Larry sent me probably within 10 minutes I had probably a dozen newspaper clippings about Tim Mara and uh, <laughs> a giant yeah. and some history with Art Rooney. And it was, I was like, wow, that was right. overwhelming. Right. So, so yeah, Larry is spend, very spend thorough. A lot of time in the newspapers, <laughs> a lot of the newspaper archives. Like it, it's just fascinating. You never, you never know what you're going to find in there. Oh, it's yes. always, it's always interesting. And yeah, so they, Bill and I, we spend a lot of time plundering the archives at newspaper.com and ProQuest, and it's, you know, you dig and you dig. It's, I liken it a lot to, um, like, virtual archaeology. You dig and you dig and you dig Absolutely. and you dig. Yeah. And then once in a while you find a gem. Like, oh, man, look what I found. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, you were going to tell us about Big Blue Interactive before I interrupt you. I apologize, but oh, I wanted to get that yeah, story in. <laughs> you know, I haven't written an article for the website in a little while, but what I am doing, which I tried to do a few years ago, was take a lot of the research articles that I wrote for the website and put them into a book. So a couple of years ago, oh. I shopped my book idea around, and I did get some interest, but it never quite worked out. So I actually, last weekend, started my attempt at rewriting the whole thing and you know, my idea and my hope is to, in a couple of years, have a book that covers the Giants, well, pro football, you know, with a focus on the Giants from, you know, 1925 up to 1958, you know, the greatest football game ever played. And I really, right. you know, I love, I love the early history of football, everything from 1920 up until the 50s when it exploded in TV and it, you know, it eclipsed baseball as America's number one uh, spectator sport. But I just find all the history, the players, the coaches, the evolution of the game from the 20s, the 30s, you know, through the Depression and then World War II and the All-America Conference. Like, I love it. And, you know, that's half the reason I love doing what I do in the newspaper archives. It's not just looking at pictures and finding uniforms, but I love to read all that stuff. I love reading the game summaries and... It's just fascinating, so I really hope to uh, get my book published. And, you know, it's a long-term project. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to take forever, but I want to do it in, you know, in a couple of years. Maybe you'll be interviewing me about my book. Well, <laughs> that, most definitely. I was just going to say that. When you do, when it's, you know, because you're going to do it. I know you, and you're going to be a, do a great job of it. You know, please let us know, and we want to have you back on the program then to promote your book and talk about it and where people can get that once it comes out because I'm sure our listeners will be extremely interested in your work after after hearing this and I don't want to take up uh, too much more of your time I appreciate the time you've given us today and uh, do you have any final words before uh, I let you go you do a great job I love your website I love everything that you do you know remembering thank you old-time football and players and you know I'm a huge huge fan of football history and you know, we just need to keep stuff like this going, podcasts and websites and books and, you know, keep it out there. You know, football is a great game today, but it was great a long time ago, too. That's right. That's. I, mean, I think we both have that uh, ambition to preserve that great gridiron history. Uh, yes. I know you and your, your cohorts over at Gridiron Uniform Database, Big Blue Interactive, Pigskin Dispatch, and all of my, my partners on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com. You know, we're trying to preserve that history for future generations. And plus, it's a lot of fun to talk about, just like we did today. It is. So, it is. Yes, it is. So, Larry Schmidt, I thank you very much again. Again, you can check out Larry's work on the Big Blue Interactive. He contributes to quite a bit and a lot on the Gridiron Uniform Database. They have some great stuff on the uniforms from all the decades and teams of all the professional football, and it's uh, just a good time. So, Larry, thank you once again for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. A very interesting man, that Larry Schmidt. He's always has some great stories and does his diligence on his research on football history, as well as all the other uh, members of the GUD over there. So make sure you check out his work at the Big Blue Interactive and the GridironUniformDatabase.com, along with Bill Schaefer, who we had on the other day. Uh, we thank you once again. We're so appreciative that you were able to join us once again here on the Pigskin Dispatch History uh daily podcast and we hope that you will join us tomorrow in order to make sure you get as soon as we release it please 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 subscribe to the podcast on your player right now or you can go to pigskindispatch.com forward slash podcast and you'll see all of our podcasts in case you may have missed an episode and you want to do some uh you know binge listening in the car for a long trip or you know just uh to help you make the day go along as you're working from the office or that home office. So uh, we want to make sure that you also take a look at the sportshistorynetwork.com where this podcast is also found. And there's many other great sports history podcasts that you can check out. It has some hosts that really have some very knowledgeable stories and uh, great guests that uh, just really make sports history come alive for you at the sportshistorynetwork.com. So until tomorrow, everybody have a great, Gridiron Day. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.